I know there's a lot of movement in training medical students now. And I, I actually like to say, hey, you guys might not all be psychiatrists when you graduate, but if you're going to be in the ER, here's what you're going to see. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast, where this is the last in our medical series. We got to have a conversation with Dr. Delia Aldridge, psychiatrist and certified eating disorder specialist. She gives us some great nuggets for all of us in the field, especially medical providers who realize they don't know some of the nuances that eating disorders can bring to the emergency room, to outpatient practices, and even to medical stabilization. So quite frankly, these are life-altering. Listen in to hear a response on how she helps a parent understand if their child's in the emergency room department or needs to be admitted, but just had a personal record, a PR in cross-country the day before. Imagine how hard it would be as a parent to understand this life-altering condition when our patients and clients appear to be functioning so well. Dr. Aldridge also shares a few medications for eating disorders and a listener comment from today that's especially good for this medical episode from Emily, dietitian working at residential level of care and outpatient private practice. Emily says, I listen to the podcast on my commute or on walks. I love the validation and the different perspectives from your guests, especially medical providers. Well, thank you, Emily, and it's been great to get to know you. Those of you who know my ministry has been to impact the care of so many people, as many as possible, through education, training, recognizing contributions of people in the field, regardless of how long or short they've been practicing, we all bring something, our seasoning. And this has come full circle to the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Aldridge. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast, Dr. Delia Aldridge. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very honored to join. We were looking at your bio before we got on and you just have, you're just doing so many things that we cannot wait to learn more about, but I'll ease you into it with some icebreakers. So my first one for you is mountains or beach? Beach. Definitely. Quick. (laughs) (laughs) Although when I grew up, I used to kind of hike in the mountains every year. The real hike for a whole week with no accommodations. (laughs) Wow. That is a real hike. Oh, my goodness. That was back in uh, Europe, in Romania. That's where I grew up. Wow. I bet that was so pretty. Yeah. And then my second one for you is breakfast or dinner? Dinner. Kind of like, because for me, dinner means like being with people, you know, exchanging thoughts settling down. Breakfast is kind of on the run a lot lot of times. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And 
the last is audiobook or paper book? Paper book. I love, I'm the old school. I want to feel it. I want to have it there, kind of have my quiet space. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, audio is in the driving. Very, very rare I have the ability to actually sit down and listen. But this is the new generation, actually. I'm starting to catch up with the, all these podcasts that are up there. I've done a few. You, so You'll be doing TikToks here before we know it. Yes, yes. All right. Well, I'm going to... Yeah. Okay. How old is your son? 15. Thank you. Yeah. He's the source then of all the technology. (laughs) This is how we grow. (laughs) It is how we grow. Yeah. Well, you are a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist certified eating disorder specialist. And so we want to know, kind of there's listeners who are still in their schooling or getting ready to take board exams. Can you bring us back to a board exam and tell us what that day was like? What do you remember? Ouch. That's because the back in the day when I graduated residency about 20 years ago, the boards were oral and you had two people shooting at you with questions, sometimes not even letting you finish one question they go for the next one. So these days, I think most of the boards are, you have like, you know, on computer, multiple choice, case simulation, and it's very standardized. But the old boards were, I would say, difficult in the sense that you had that human nature that if the two examiners didn't agree or have different orientation, especially in psychiatry, we have so many differences. It was like a biological psychiatrist and a psychoanalytic psychiatrist and they both want to show off uh, how much they know and want you to actually show that you know something from their field (laughs) yeah so there's no egos in the room (laughs) oh you're kidding me (laughs) (laughs) ah thank you for sharing that well I want to know how you got into the field of psychiatry and then how you got into eating disorders Well, I tell you, I was fascinated with the brain. And I remember when I was in psychiatry residency, we all have to do the six month of internal medicine rotation. And I actually, my first rotation was with the chairman of medicine at the hospital where I was training. And he said, well, if you ever want to switch to medicine, come and talk to me because you're really good with internal medicine. And I said, well, I just want to take, know enough to pass the, the third step, which is the license. But they kept telling me, you, you know, so much internal medicine, actually falling into the eating disorder world was amazing combination of medicine and psychiatry, because that's actually where you, you could combine the knowledge that is probably the best training. So how did you get into it? Did you start working in a facility that treated eating disorders? So, yeah. So when I graduated uh, residency, I actually had the opportunity to work the last year of residency. I was academic chief resident and work with the women's clinic. So I joined initially at the time, Alexian Brothers Hospital Behavioral Health to work on developing a women's program. And because I did a lot of postpartum work, mood disorders, uh, in the residency, we even had weekend, on weekend, you could go and get extra psychoanalytic training because our program director was going through psychoanalytic institute. So that was a very great opportunity for us to learn as well. And they have an eating disorder PHP at that time. And the clinical director approached me and said, hey, 
you know, most of those patients were a woman doctor. And I said, well, I don't know anything about eating disorder. What am I going to do? And he's like, don't worry. We have therapists. We have dietitians. You just do your psych meds. So I said, okay, I can do psych meds, but I don't know anything about eating disorder. So next thing I know, I had a kid that gained 10 pounds in three days. And so I called the guy and I said, hey, what do I do? He said, I don't know. You're the doctor. And what I started doing, I followed Dr. Mailer for two years at the IADEP and the academy meetings, the pre-conference, learn about medical complication of eating disorder. And actually, the other thing I did, I went to all the trainings that they had for therapists, all their multidisciplinary work that they were doing, the dietitian, therapist in the same room, a lot of trainees. And I kind of try to understand how they approach the therapy and the food component and then had to figure out the medical and the psych because the internal medicine doc that I initially worked with was like, why do I have to repeat labs? They're fine. They come in with BMI 13, right? And the labs are fine and never heard about refeeding syndrome because they don't teach that in medical school. They don't teach that in residency. So that was the case. You know, I was like, what happened? Thank God that kid went okay, full recovery and everything. But I actually started looking. And when I started looking at the time on resources, it didn't have much. You know, IPA guidelines just published, not much medical information, not much about what do you do with psych meds. Fast forward, APA just published the guidelines very recently. Our community actually was able to give some input. I know through IDEB gave input. The place I work for, Eating Recovery Center, also we got together a bunch of clinicians and Dr. Riddle actually represented our facility and brought in the input. So I feel like they're more updated compared to the 2002 guidelines, right? But still, there isn't much that starters, people that start in in, um, in the community know, how do you blend all the eating disorder knowledge, the therapy, the nutrition with the psychiatry component? There's a lot of work on medical. The Academy of Eating Disorder has medical guidelines, like medical standard guidelines, but there's not much on psychiatry. Yeah. And this is where where I first met you. And I thought I need to get to know this person because, and I'm going to say this story a little off, but you can correct me. We were at an IADEP conference and it was open mic and you came up and said that when you're on a peer-to-peer with an insurance company that's denying care for someone with an eating disorder and you're saying, are you a certified eating disorder specialist? And of course they said no. And then you're like, this is not a peer-to-peer. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes. Actually what happened was a person, I had a patient that was in the hospital for three months already, very underweight. She was back then, like maybe BMI 13. And the reviewer told me that they deny her stay further. They didn't think she needed more inpatient. And they recommended either we send her to the state hospital, which in Illinois, no state hospital will take an insurer patient, or send her to a hospital that no longer had an insurer unit, or send them to Columbia, which only does research. Yes, it's free, but I asked the, them, that, like, are you going to cover travel because patient can't afford? And they said no. So I said, 
you know, then they told me that I said, it sounds like you're really out of date with the reality of treatment of eating disorder. And, and they said, well, you can appeal. I said, okay, since this is recorded, I want to make sure it's recorded. This is not a peer to peer review. And if we're doing an appeal, I'm requesting a, a certified user or a specialist. And he said, what is that? <laughs> Cause they never heard of. So that's kind of how I actually got the passion. And actually they gave me five months coverage. Yay. Full treatment was actually they, we appealed and we were successful. Listen, this is the beginning of all of the medical providers really. And, and I know there are other medical providers through IADEP who are, have worked really hard to get medical doctors and medical providers certified. That's a whole nother story, but your just your passion and your not willingness to give up and say, what's happening here? So there's a couple things that you said that you did. You just got in with the multidisciplinary. You started infusing your brain with therapy, food, medicine, and psych. Those were all psychi- psychiatry. So one of the things that you said too, is that the labs are fine. Well, how do you help doctor, like, how do you help doctors understand when the labs are fine that there's there's a lot of work to be done i actually you know talk about refeeding syndrome now i have a little handout because often i i now work with a lot of kids and parents are sent by pediatrician to emergency room and they have low weight and labs are fine they don't always do an orthostatic blood pressure change because they just just get baseline labs. Sometimes an EKG could still be in reasonable heart rate, but they know nothing about refeeding syndrome. They don't really take into account. I actually had a one of my colleagues back in the day when I was in the hospital, and they did a consult with a kid that lost 100 pounds and was in ICU because he had low heart rate. But he said, oh, but he's fine. He's got a tray in front of him and he seems to be eating and his weight is fine. I said, and how's his phosphorus? It was almost critical. Oh, my Because they didn't have a check and the doctors there didn't check. So I said, can we get a phosphorus? And it turns out it was 0.9. And the kid... Obviously, he had a tray in front of him, but nobody was watching what he was eating. <laughs> he was actually starting to eat because he was scared. And actually, that's part of why, actually, when people really start eating more and they go up too fast, too soon, you can have the hypophosphatemia that's a marker for possible refeeding syndrome. Luckily, so you have a handout? Is it available to us? Yeah, I usually give, a, um, and I'll be happy to share, I, I uh, drafted that when I was at the hospital because parents would come in emergency room and were sent in by the docs. And then I would have the pediatrician call me and say, we sent it to emergency room. And they send them home. And I said, how come nobody called even to do a consult? Because they're fine. So then we had to do a lot of work with the emergency room docs to actually educate about the risk of refeeding and what kind of monitoring needs to happen. So I feel like it's not enough. I know there's a lot of movement in training medical students now, and I I actually like to say, hey, you guys might not all be psychiatrists when you graduate, but if you're going to be in ER, here's what you're going to see. Or if you're going to be 
in a medical floor and you did surgery and your patient is not recovering well is because maybe their nutrition is very poor, right? So I kind of touch it based or will be guided docs. I said, well, you might have a woman that has trouble conceiving, but she never had restored her weight and they're always underweight. And that's a very common reason of infertility, poor nutrition and, you know, poor hormonal balance, basically. And those kids have those patients tend to have difficulty conceiving and then you have low growth and low birth weight and all the complications that come with that. Mm. So I, I kind of catch their attention because I also teach medical students. So it's great. I do as much, as much as education as I do. And if I said, if there's one thing you get from this one hour lecture, because that's all they give me is refeeding syndrome and where to find a place you know, in your community where you can send people, a therapist, a dietitian is fine because you guys usually have a network that you can send in referral. Right. Listen, this is so important because when you first were given, you mentioned an hour with medical students, when you first were given a module for the IADEP certification core courses, they said, we don't know anything about psychiatry here. Tell us in 30 minutes. <laughs> You're yeah. like, Okay. So it's basically what do we do and when to call us. And yes, most of the time people might not get better because they have comorbid conditions because just if the food and therapy don't do enough work or patients keep relapsing and not restoring well enough, think comorbidities. I would like to think these days and where I practice now is we get it from the initial. We look at comorbid condition from the beginning. We look at comorbid condition pre-existing to the eating disorder. Sometimes there's pre-existing OCD, anxiety, very common in patients with eating disorder, depression or trauma. And so mm-hmm. those, when you add the eating disorder, make the recovery a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So I think that is the the importance of having that background from the get-go rather than way to relapse and or have prolonged course without thinking that there might be other combining factors to just the recovery from the food. Although food is number one. Of course, right. And that's also the 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 difficult because we can refeed someone and then they can lose the weight again. And oh yeah. (laughs) So the bullet points One of them was labs are fine, and so we need to go beyond what fine is, and we also need to know which labs to look at when they're not fine and critical. What are, are there any medication bullet points that you want us to know? Yeah, so basically, typically, I would, like I said, I wouldn't want to start with just medication, but I would want to know if there is any pre-existing condition. So if patients sometimes are impaired to start with from their mental illness, it is really much harder for them to even recover and to, you know, collaborate in the treatment. So what we do as psychiatrists, we look at the baseline, what were the previous conditions, then we do have two FDA, these are two bullet points, two FDA approved medications that are used in eating disorder. We have Prozac or fluoxetine that's FDA approved in patients with bulimia nervosa. We have short called Vivas, Listex, amphetamine dimesylate, long name, that is approved for binge eating disorder. 
and there's a bunch of other medications that could be used to treat comorbid condition or even bulimia nervosa. We have a lot of data in using multiple antidepressants for that. The other bullet point that just last week I had a patient come in from the community on Wilbutrin. He was significantly underweight, high risk of electrolyte abnormalities. And when you add that to the risk of seizure from adding Wilbutrin, I actually had a few cases where people had a seizure or seizure-like activity with no eating disorder history. So you add on somebody that's anorexic, maybe he was also misusing laxatives, but they don't talk about these because if you don't ask, you don't know. And, and that's part of why I'm excited that the APA put out the guidelines that at least gives the docs, the psychiatrists, uh, a basic knowledge of questions to ask, screening questions, and definitely bupropion or Wellbutrin contraindication in patients with eating disorders. I want to go back to Vyvanse with patients who have binge eating disorder. When they are recovering and binging decreases, what do you do with the Vyvanse? Is it a slow decrease? Because I can imagine that cutting it off, maybe cold turkey could send them back into some behaviors. Absolutely. So personally, I do not prescribe Vyvanse without a dietitian and a course or CBT. So I want them to have a full dietary assessment, have a meal plan, have a CBT course. In certain situations when patients maybe cannot go through the therapy right away or there's long waits, then we do use the Vyvanse for patients with binge eating. But again, there are certain cautions you have to have. You have to worry about addiction. You have to worry about cardiac issues. And when you use it, Again, the studies were done up to three months. They did a study. There was one study I saw up to a year that, because we don't know, like initially it was three months. Okay, we have good response, decreased severity of binge eating, but then when, how long, how much? So we had one study that showed that actually patients that stayed on the medication for about a year had lower risk of relapse. But I don't think, and in general, for Indusor, we don't have much long-term studies to say, okay, if somebody's in recovery, how long, how much? Is there a benefit in prevention? Same as, like, say, for Prozac for or fluoxetine for bulimia nervosa, how long you use it? I usually say at least a year, and then longer than that, we have to adjust based on the progress, the comorbid you know, conditions, and where they are in, with their eating disorder recovery. Great response. These are so, I have, I have written so many things down, Dr. Aldridge, that I wanted to ask you about. And I want to link to the APA guidelines because those are new, newer released, but they were so old before that it wasn't, yeah, anyways. And so I want to hear more about that. But when, now that we have Dr. Voss with us, one of the things that you mentioned was ER training and that you can send your patient to the ER and then they don't consult with you and they'll send the patient home. We as dietitians deal with that so often and and it's scary because we're not medical providers and anyways, I, I don't know if you have any advice for us. I'll just say, though, before you speak up, that that happens here, too, at our children at, at, at multiple places. And 
Yeah, even though we've we've tried really hard to say, please consult us, and we've called the ER and put the note in, sometimes mm. it still doesn't happen. And it's just awareness. They're busy, and the kid looks okay, labs are stable, and they don't have a good understanding. So I'm also open to any advice. Well, I think what, so I, I worked for 17 years at Alexian Brothers. That was where I started the in disorder program, the inpatient unit, sickest of the sickest here in the area. Now I'm with any recovery center. And I think now we're fortunate that I treat mostly kids and I know I know one or two places where I can actually send the kids and know they're going to get the right care. Yes, we do call them too. Like you said, they used to call, they used to give report. And I would say with after a lot of training where I was after about five years of training, probably, I finally started to get a call. And, or for example, I had somebody that was having hypoglycemia and I said, do not give them D- D50, right? Because that's going to get their sugar even lower and don't do IV drip because this is part of that purges a lot. And guess what? They got on the floor with high rate of IV drip and the sugar was getting lower and they didn't listen to me. Then I have a medical doc that I trained. And she said the same thing. And unfortunately, sometimes these cases end up with severe fluid retention from this IV drip that they do. And so I think what's important is develop a relationship with ER, know what's in the area. I feel like there's a few places, even in Chicago, being big place, where are many places where you can actually say, I can send a patient is going to be taken care of. They have an in-store program. Doesn't always mean that they actually have train ER. And the problem is ER now are big groups of docs that they rotate. So you never know who, who you're getting. So mm-hmm. often I would say just kind of keep keep trying, keep working. I say educating the medical students. Now I actually moved on with a few psych departments residency. So I'm training those and doing the talks. And like I said, a lot of them don't even know about eating disorder, don't know about repeating and what to watch for. And so is it appropriate for the dietitian to say, don't leave, like don't leave until the, the doctor consults, the ER doc consults the referring doc? That would be a best practice. And the fact that I, I actually talked with a few docs, tell them about refeeding, tell about the risk, and they still let the patient go. So that is the problem with the culture, where even if you call in ahead of time, you give the risk, you educate them about the risk. I know nothing about refeeding. Here's what you need to know about refeeding and still didn't come, didn't compute. So I feel like almost, you know, based on the age group I have, I know where to send. There's one or two places I can send a kid, one or two places I can send an adult. And now I call the the doc that specializes in the eating disorder in that facility. So they actually can give a heads up and call me when they're clear kind of thing. And Chicago is a big place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times it just solidifies to the patient that, well, I must not have an eating disorder. They told me that I'm fine. They sent me home. They said my labs look good. They said that they're not concerned. So if sick enough, right? Yeah. Sick enough. enough. Yeah. So that's part of what I do these days when I review cases sometimes, like I, I work with kids with ERC and we have a residential eating disorder patient, but I have actually background and capacity to do a lot of refeeding in a residential because I have, I can do two feedings. I can have the medical expertise to watch for refeeding. 
And so we do stat labs, stat EKG, and then we know what we can handle. And if they're also like, let's say a heart rate less than 40 or any abnormal electrolytes, then we, we know exactly where to send the kids to get the medical care. And now we have a, a designated place that actually has a refeeding protocol that uses FBT kind of approach. Yeah, I wanted to point out, you you mentioned a couple places for kids and a couple places for adults. And I think that's important to realize that sending a child, even if they're like 16, 17, even 18, going to an adult hospital, they're going to get very different care than they are at a children's hospital. Yep. And the hospitals aren't going to know how to handle the ch- child. So in our area, we often have people driving more than an hour to get to the children's hospital because they know it can provide the right kind of care. So I think also if you're in, in private practice out there, directing them to the appropriate hospital is extremely important. Yeah, I feel like networking with most programs in the area was a plus because they kind of, at least I say, here's my cell phone, text me. If you don't know something, text me. I have parents that sometimes we recommend a residential or inpatient level of care. And they they say, well, why? The labs are fine. The, the, the doctor said they're okay. We just went in ER. So then I send them the handout about refeeding with references. And most of them actually come back and they realize, because when they try to apply other places, they see nobody else is going to take me, but they don't tell them where to go. So I said, just come on in. We'll work with you. I've, I've had a back in the day when I was in Alexia and I had a patient coming from Green Bay, Wisconsin, passed through Milwaukee, which they have a children's hospital, but somehow they didn't admit them. So they came all the way to us in Illinois and the kid was like BMI 12. I, you know, I don't know exactly right now the numbers because she's always been on the low end. So I said, okay, we'll work with you. There's nowhere else they're going to go. It's 12 o'clock in the middle of the night. There's nothing else for this family. We'll do the best we can. And we had a we had a medical facility right next to us that we can we could admit the kid medically. But she actually managed pretty well. That's the nice thing about kids, they're more resilient compared to adults that had struggled with Inzor for many years. So I feel it's a it's a beautiful blend between medicine and psychiatry when I do this. I'm very fortunate to be able to to do this work. I wanna I wanna hone in on that though, when you said it's nice for kids because they're more resilient. And I think that is nice for them personally and their growth. And we know that they can have better shot at recovery. However, I sometimes find it difficult as a consultant to the hospital's team to describe how sick they really are when their labs are on the edge of normal, but they're still normal. And so talking a lot about trends and sometimes the kids don't like by the time they show the abnormalities that the hospitals is looking for, it's too late. That would be, they'd be really, really sick. So do you have advice on how you can teach them that even if things kind of look quote unquote normal, they, they're not? Well, so coming from work of 17 years, I had all ages and now I do mostly with kids. Problem is developmentally, some of them don't really think no matter how sick they are, that they're actually very sick. So sometimes the work needs to be done with a parent to educate them and and to kind of bring in down age appropriate. Some of them, like you say, they feel like, but I feel fine. I mean, I've had people significantly underweight, you know, a lot of, I would say, let's say kids with anorexia that are perfectionistic, straight A students, multiple APs. 
And with time, sometimes they don't feel it. And I say, well, it takes you longer to memorize something. Does it take you long? Because sometimes, just like anorexia is like a delusion about food, body, you know, numbers, weight. Sometimes they don't feel wrong or there's anything problems in the other domain. So then a lot of times, actually, I have to work more with the parents to step in and say, well, if your kid would have another terminal illness or severe illness, you would actually pull them out of school because that's the thing. They don't want to pull them out of school. don't want to pull them out of ballet and tennis or whatever, you know, Ivy League sports they're in. And I think a lot of work has to be done with parents, too, and a lot of motivational interviewing. I had a mid-teen, 14, 15, come in. And for an initial evaluation, I recommended admission. And mom was like, but she just ran cross-country match yesterday and had her best PR ever. She's not sick. And I was like, you're just lucky she didn't, like, go into a seizure in rhabdo. (laughs) Well, so what I would tell them is, like, do you hear those cases that do a marathon and they drop dead? Mm Mm-hmm. Be thankful that we actually were able to watch and you came in. If this was my kid, and this is what I use a lot of time. If this was my kid with the knowledge I had, I would be very scared for their life. So using that personal perspective, I'm a, I'm a parent, I have a teenager. And I said, this was my kid. Here's what I worry about. And here's worry about, we talked initially, you weren't in the, in the connection about the irreversible complications that can come with the disorder you know, the osteoporosis, osteopenia. I said, you could be 20 and have the bones of an 80-year-old. I've had patients in their 20s with all teeth out because the purging, the severity of purging, and then all the lifelong complication. I've seen people that abuse laxative for many years and they went in recovery. But then 10 years later, because I had the outpatient practice, even though they were in recovery for years, then they start getting irreversible damage of their gut. And I had, you know, and nobody would touch them now because they have an eating disorder. Even though they were in recovery, their gut wasn't moving. I have, I had the worst case I had was this woman that was drinking a gallon of golightly a day as a result of her severe bulimia and laxative abuse. And she went all over the country and nobody would touch her. She said, can, can they just get it all out so I can have a colostomy because I can't move. So that's kind of the, I kind of was mentioning the extreme cases I've had to deal with because it wasn't, and and the hospital I work with was taking Medicare, Medicaid. So I kind of had the sickest of the sickest that are not taken in other places. Yeah. And that's how we learn. And this is the thing I was going to ask you back when you were talking about, like the labs are fine. We need to under explain what refeeding syndrome is and that's all fine and good, but This is a life-threatening situation. So I was going to say, and if they don't know about refeeding syndrome and they are giving D50 and they are doing low sugar or fast uh, rate of IV fluids. IV fluids, yes. This is life-threatening, right? So what happens, they they could succumb to this illness because their body has reached its limit, even though this is what fascinates me with the best PR that Dr. Voss was talking about. And they're so sick. Like, how does that happen? I tell you, I mean, I I feel so fortunate now that I work with with kids and I can actually provide a lot more wraparound work with the families because the kids cannot recover by themselves. 
And if you catch it at this younger age, you don't have the lifelong complication as much. I've seen recovery in people that have been 10, 15 years with the illness or 20. We know long studies, right? 60% of people get better 20 years later, right? The mass general study. But I, I really feel like so much, so much excitement about being able to do the family work that these kids need in order to get in recovery because, but it's really hard to struggle with like parents that fight you on the meal plan or fight you on the eating healthy and clean eating. <laughs> Don't even start me there. I see your face. <laughs> right. But that, that is, that is a big battle and the perfectionistic, you know, Taipei kind of kids that want to be in everything. And I really have to do a lot of work with the parents because the kids don't have the insight. The The lack of insight is the hallmark of the illness often. Yeah. And I will say I've also worked with the kids who are pretty much just so relieved that somebody stepped in to, to quote, save them from themselves because yeah. they know they're exhausted. They know that it takes them, like you said, Dr. Aldridge, the whole, it takes me for much longer to try to memorize things for a test or, you know, that PR that Dr. Voss, you talked about for that patient. That was not easy. I mean, and I'm sure that that person was going through some significant personal struggles to get to that. I actually just got a student. I, I did a talk, my yearly talk on eating disorder, and a student reached out and say, thank you so much. It's so good to know that there's this work. I remember being a kid with severe anorexia, being admitted at UCLA and had they put me on Zyprexa. And I remember how distorted I was. And and I still feel so, so much shame that I was sick and I kind of had to work with her. It's like, listen, there's recovery. You're in medical field. And she said, yeah, and I think I'm interested in out psychiatry. And I said, I'll be happy to be your mentor. And the other thing I like to give parents, feast.org, feast organization, has a blog with a kid saying, thank you, mom and dad, for making the decision for me when I wasn't able to do so. I give that to all my patients. That particular blog is so powerful because it kind of helps parents understand how, how sick sometimes the kids can be, but they don't realize it especially when they're like day to day and kind of help them make that decision. Yeah. We'll have to make sure that gets in the show notes because it is hard. And Beth, even you saying that you've had patients who are then grateful that you, you were able to step in and help them. That's even reassuring because it takes time to get there. It takes time for them to be like, Oh, this was a good idea. I'm glad that I'm doing this work now. So that reassurance is like, wow. Yeah, that that blog was very helpful, I, I would say. And I actually had the honor to meet uh, Judy Krasna, the executive director. She came and toured our facility and also commented that she was very surprised to see that we're using FBT inform approach and that, you know, putting the kid in a treatment program is not as bad as they thought. Because back in the day, they thought, uh, you know, if you put a kid in residential is, you know, it is hard, but I said, we do so much work with the families. We get them in, we get them do the meals. We do the emotion-focused family therapy that actually helps decrease some of that power struggle that sometimes they engage in. And and a lot of parent support, I feel that's very important. And I not only we have parent support through our organization, but I also refer them to the FEAST parent support because I've had some of them coming back and say, 
wow, I didn't know there's so much work you guys do here compared to what's out there. Because they, they talk with kids, with parents actually from all over the world. And now one thing I actually just got message from Judy about having a men's program, because sometimes men don't connect, don't really feel the same connection maybe that moms do and we often know that men are kind of some men are you know disconnected or absent dad and all that and have a a special group just for them I think that's amazing so I'll take any resources I can get I think that's a really important point that you brought out just thinking about people who might be in private practice or in a smaller community that having those online resources or even getting permission from someone who's recovered in their family to act as an advocate, because sometimes those families just need to talk to someone who's been through the experience to say, is it really worth it? I have to give up my 13-year-old child for a handful of months, and that's scary, and I have to send them to a different state sometimes. And so having those resources is just you can talk, you know, to them until you're blue in the face, but until they talk to someone who's been through the experience, sometimes it just doesn't matter. So. Yeah. So I do refer them to our, we have a parent support group through ERC that anybody can join. And it's actually run by a former parent that had a kid in treatment. So that's different. And to feast resources. It's like amazing support group that they do. Well, just like you said, you would take all the resources. We would take just like a hundred more of you would be lovely. I think that would be great work for this eating disorder world. But I do have a wrap up question for you. If you were to take yourself back into entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Wow. That's a, (laughs) that's a heavy question. I wish I knew all the stuff I know now and had the resources. Again, now I actually I didn't get to talk to you about that an hour and a half of presentation we have of the role of psychiatrists in the treatment of eating disorder that anybody wants to specialize and go through the core courses through IADAP can actually have access to because when when the committee asked me about like, so what what book do you have? we can put as reference. I said, we don't have one. (laughs) There's a couple of articles and guidelines, but, you know, from medical, you have complications, medical complications from Dr. Mailer. You have the uh, Academy of Eating Disorder Standards, then the Society for Adolescent Medicine, they have their guidelines. But psychiatry, we just got the APA guidelines, which is not enough, actually, on how you treat. So so maybe we can come up with a book next time. I'm sorry. So you have a resource, though, that people who've been through the core courses can access. We just recorded. Yes. So it will be in the next couple of months, uh, role of psychiatrists in the treatment of eating disorder. And any medical provider want to specialize, you know, reach out to IDAP and I'll be happy to guide them through the process. But it's available. Anybody that wants to go in and listen to the core courses. In the next month or two, I'm told, it's going to be um, uploaded. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Delia Aldridge, for joining us on the Seasoned RD. Thank you. And I'm honored to join you and feel free to reach out. I feel like I probably owe you a few resources that I've talked about. (laughs) Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. 
If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethherrell.com professionals.